Oregon's a big favorite on Saturday, but the Ducks can still get better against Stanford, and there are a couple key areas to watch. Here we go. You are Locked On Ducks, your daily podcast on the Oregon Ducks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Yes, it is that time once again for Locked On Ducks. I'm your host, Spencer McLaughlin. Thank you so much for making this your first listen or your first few of the day. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day, and your number one source to stay up to date with the Ducks. If you have not already, like, comment, subscribe, rate, review, please, and thank you wherever you listen to or watch the show, which today is brought to you by FanDuel Sportsbook, official sportsbook of Locked on. Make every moment more. Right now, new customers can bet $5 and get 200 in bonus bets guaranteed. Visit FanDuel.com slash locked on today to get started. It's Oregon against Stanford, but also Oregon against Oregon on Saturday. Red shirt talk and that guy in the defensive coordinator role, Tosh Lupoy, talking about him today on the show as well. Where those of you watching on YouTube can see, I'm rocking a Portland Trailblazers t-shirt. That is not by accident. We knew this day was coming, Trailblazer fans. I imagine there are a lot of you listening or watching out there. And I would just like to say, if Damian Lillard is somehow a Locked On Ducks listener or viewer, that uh, we are all incredibly thankful for the years you gave us. And we're all rooting for you to win the championship this year. So let's get into another team we want to win a championship. Uh, that be the Ducks. Now, this Saturday against Stanford, Oregon's a 27, last I checked, point favorite, according to our friends over at FanDuel. And look, I don't have any doubts about Oregon losing the game for, for two reasons. Number one, Stanford is not good. Number two, Oregon is good. And number three, we have seen in the Dan Lanning era what I thought was really refreshing last year watching a lot of the games Teams that Oregon should have beaten comfortably, they beat comfortably, right? Stanford last year, the game was 31-3 to at the half. At that point, it's over. I think they ended up winning like 45-27 or something. The reserves got in and everything like that. Cal, the game uh, was not close by the fourth quarter. Arizona, Oregon had it put away. Ty Thompson got into it. And we've seen that once again this year. Big favorite against Colorado, big win against Colorado. Big favorite against Hawaii, big win against Hawaii. Portland State, the same deal. So, I'm not worried about winning the game. I am still going to be, of course, watching, but also watching for specific elements from the Ducks. So where can Oregon get better on Saturday and help improve as we do, you know, look a couple weeks in the future and that Washington game is, is going to be something. Uh, I'll just say it's going to be a big, big something. Like maybe the highest ranked matchup ever, uh, at least in my lifetime, between the Ducks and the Huskies, but it might be the highest ranked matchup ever by that time. So... Penalties, 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 penalties. I said after the Colorado game, I felt that if Oregon didn't continue to improve, and they've gotten better since Texas Tech, but if they don't continue to improve in the penalties department, it's going to cost them a game. If you have 70 penalty yards and you give Michael Penix and that Washington offense second, third, and fourth chances to move the ball down the field and get past the sticks, guess what? You're going to lose the football game, straight up. Against Texas Tech, it was 14 penalties for 124 yards. Against Hawaii, an inferior opponent, 9 for 76. Against Colorado, who was also a lesser opponent compared to the ones that Oregon will face this year. Better than a Hawaii or Portland State for sure, but not on the same level as we saw as a Washington or a USC or a Utah. 9 for 80 yards. So that's that's come down from the 124, but when you're starting way down here, right? And anytime I start talking with my hands, I think of Billy Bean and Moneyball, okay? 
That's my bar up here, right? Championship level. That's my bar. And right now, the bar for Oregon and the penalties, it's down here. And that's way too low. My hand's below the microphone for those of you watching on YouTube. You can't have that. You, you just can't have that. Oregon's averaging 75 penalty yards a game. And they've been over that in three of their four games so far. So against an opponent like Stanford, similar caliber to Hawaii, I would say, who they beat 37, I think 24 in, uh, in week one on the road. That has got to be better. And these are live game reps against a team that is going to be trying to win. Oregon should not have any problem whatsoever. In fact, I don't think they will have any problem whatsoever getting stops or moving the football. I think Stanford's offense is better than their defense. I'll talk more about them on tomorrow's show, but I wanted to focus on Oregon today because I think it's the most important aspect of the game. The penalties have got to be better. You have to be able to go out and play good, clean football. There have been improvements but more improvement is needed. Your your penalty yards, Oregon needs to cut that in half. You need to be around the 40 mark, right? Penalties are going to happen. You're not going to get it down to zero, but you need to have no more than 30, 40 yards in penalties, or else you're talking about an entire drive's worth of yardage that you're just giving to the other team. And it doesn't matter against Colorado. It didn't matter against Hawaii. It will matter against the Washingtons, USC's, Utah's, and Oregon states of the world. So that's the first thing. Second thing, is the strong third down defense. Do you remember last year? feels like a distant memory, but also like it happened just a few moments ago. 2022's Oregon defense was up and down, showed glimpses, but didn't realize its full potential, and, and really was, on the whole, a disappointment in year one. Well, they look a lot improved in year two, and the numbers are backing that up, whether you're talking about the sack numbers, passing yards allowed, everything looks better. Here's a great number for you. Oregon this season is allowing opponents to convert a third down about 33% of the time, 32.7 to be exact. In 2022, a big reason for Oregon's woes defensively was their inability to get off the field on third down. That number last year was just under 47%. So you're talking about a 14 point percentage decrease in the number of third third downs the defense has allowed this year. That is an excellent number. That is an excellent number. Can it get better? It, it can always get better, sure. But if Oregon keeps it there throughout the, throughout the course of the entire season, which is a reflection of both their play calling and ability to execute and also how they do on first and second down, then they are going to be set up for success in every game that they play. Doesn't mean they'll win every game, but that's a good place to be. So against Stanford a team that is going back and forth with quarterbacks, that doesn't have elite weapons on the outside, that does not have a good offensive line either, Oregon should be able to put up similar numbers to what they did last week against Colorado. Heck, I'd almost expect it to be better. Colorado was 5 of 14 on third downs in that game. I'm good with that. (laughs) I mean, if if Oregon holds every opponent to 5 of 14 on third down, the rate at which they got off the field, their ability to force punts, they didn't even need turnovers to, to get off the field and get the ball back to their offense. That was outstanding. If it stays there the rest of the year, I suspect it'll go up as we play better teams. But that's the sort of range where you want to be, kind of that 30 to 35%. So those are the two areas, you know, in terms of Oregon's play that I am looking for and thinking to myself, okay, if, if this gets better, we should feel better going into Washington. But if it gets worse... 
then there will be major questions. But we'll have a couple of weeks to talk about that. We have to see what uh, what happens. Here's another one, and this is not really you know reflective of the play, but it it is at the same time. This is a game where Oregon should be able to get ahead and get ahead quickly and get ahead comfortably. Bo Nix should not take a snap in the fourth quarter. No starter should need to take a snap in the fourth quarter of this game. If Oregon comes out focused, ready to go, and executing the way they're capable of, it won't be a close football game. But the injuries, which we saw against Colorado, Noah Whittington is out for an undisclosed amount of time, that is something you have to avoid in this game. Right, you, you, You've got to be able to stay away from that. And part of the way you, you help that cause is you don't have your starters on the field very much. And you're able to run maybe slightly more basic concepts, something I'll elaborate on more in, in just a moment. But getting the starters off the field when they're capable of being off the field, which is early, third, or early to mid-third quarter, that would be ideal for the Ducks. I think their game plan in the second half against Colorado after the game was in hand was, hey, let's play conservative, run out the clock a little bit, just kind of run the ball, don't get Bo Nix hurt, anything like that, get some other guys in there. And they only put up uh, seven points in the second half and only had two you know, super meaningful drives. And, and they chewed up a lot of clock as well. So those are the three things I want to see. Penalties, third down percentage on defense, and avoiding injuries. Those are the three things that Oregon can do to get themselves as ready as possible for Washington in a couple weeks. One thing offensively to watch for relates to Bo Nix. You can bet things like Bo Nix over-unders on FanDuel, you know, or really anything you want. Snap into the action this NFL season with FanDuel, America's number one sports book. Right now, new customers get $200 in bonus bets guaranteed when you place a $5 bet. That's 200 in bonus bets, win or lose. If you've been thinking about joining FanDuel, there's no better time to get in on the action. The app is so easy to use. There's a wide range of betting options, including spreads, player props, over-unders, and more. So visit FanDuel.com slash locked on, kick off the NFL season, and bet anything you want for college football. Oregon, about a 27-ish point favorite. Yeah, that's a big number. They're capable of covering. I really hope they do. If you think they will, go bet it over at FanDuel. FanDuel, official partner of the NFL. Okie dokie. Second segment sip, official partner of making this show as good as possible. So this is a question that came in via the mailbag, which is always open to you, YouTube comments, or hit me up on Twitter at smalls underscore 55, or if you want a priority mailbag question as in goes to the front of the line no matter what, go join the Locked on Ducks subtext community. Link in the description below wherever you're listening to or watching this show. This from Duck2081A on the injuries note. Spencer, I asked this question of the Autzen boys back in March. Any chance the new OC will try and protect Bo from injury? I believe Justin Herbert was limited from running in 2019 until the Rose Bowl. That's true. They gave it a big no. What do you say after four games? I think I was on track. Bo only runs in must-have downs. I completely agree with you that Bo only runs in must-have downs. Through the first four games, Oregon, you know, except Texas Tech, has not faced a game that has been in question where you might need to rely on the quarterback run and open up that element, which makes your quarterback more vulnerable to injury, as we saw last year, but also can create a more explosive and dynamic running game overall. So it's really hard to scheme a great running game that doesn't involve the quarterback run. Like Kyle Shanahan is a wizard. He is, you know, he and Mike McDaniel are two of two. I was going to say one of one, but of course there's two of them. They're two of two. They're in the NFL for a reason. 
Bo's legs are a weapon, absolutely. But we need that weapon to be available in the big games. And this game against Stanford is one where I don't expect to see a lot of quarterback runs because it's not necessary. You'll see Bo scamper from time to time. He'll have options, but I I don't want to see Bo running in the red zone. I don't want to see Bo you know, running and taking hits. If he does take off, slide or get down all the time because this is a game where schematically you shouldn't have to empty the entire bag. Doesn't mean you aren't trying to score points and be explosive. They should not have to empty the entire bag in terms of running the football in order to have success, right? The quarterback being mobile gives you, you know, extra numbers in the box. And when you're facing a good front four like Washington or a capable one like USC's or a great one like Utah's, you might need to introduce that component in order to run the football with any modicum of success against a team like Stanford that is just talent deficient at basically every key spot on the roster. Yeah, you shouldn't need to bust out the Bo Nix running game. And I think Colorado was evidence of that last week. Like on the ground, Oregon should be able to do what they did last week, which was run the ball at any point in time with as much success as they want. And I, I, you know, I'm thinking back right now to that game and I don't think Bo really ran. I I think the only mobility component in the running game was the RPO. And, And I think that's a great base to have. You only want Bo running in the big games when he has to. In a game like this, he, he should not, we should not be calling the design runs, uh, should not be, should not need to, right? You just, you, you shouldn't need to, if, if you have to, that's a problem. I don't think Oregon's going to have to, and I don't think Bo will be on the move, uh, very much this week. And I agree, like he hasn't done a ton of running this season. And I think that's by design because there's an element of risk there, right? When he gets hurt, the offense is not quite as effective, but I think that, you know, what, what everything I talked about should come to fruition on uh, on Saturday. So let's keep going into the mailbag here into the subtext where you get priority mailbag questions. Others had sent questions in before, but when you send one in via subtext, it goes to the top. That's how the way it goes. Good morning, Spencer. But also not a requirement for listening to or watching the show or getting into the mailbag. I have never, not once, let a single question go unanswered. Good morning, Spencer. Thanks for answering my mailbag questions. You're spot on about the impact of our track football or track program on football recruits. Mailbag. Now that we're four games into the season, we should be getting a clear picture on which freshman will play more than four games this season, red shirt or somewhere in between. Your thoughts. And do you think any might transfer if they don't feel they have enough playing time? So uh, first of all, there is no in between really. I, I, I can't think of a guy who would just waste a year of eligibility by playing in, you know, three games and not redshirting. So the NCAA rule, and it's a rare good one from the NCAA. This is rare props being given to the NCAA here, but this is a good rule that is a newer one that they've come up with in the last few years. You are able to redshirt in college football if you play in four games or fewer. So you can still get some experience, but you're not wasting a year by just, you know, appearing in a couple games uh, or having to come in because of an injury or anything like that. I think that's a great move on on all fronts. So there aren't really any in-between guys that I could think of. Like Ty Thompson, for instance, is a redshirt sophomore right now. It's his third year of college football. He's a redshirt sophomore because he redshirted his first year because he didn't play in uh, more than four games. Kyler Casper, for instance, is a redshirt freshman. So I I think that when you look at the the guys that Oregon's got in that particular position, like the 2023 recruiting class, Tatum Tuioti 
and Blake Purchase and Mateo Uyungle have already burned their red shirts. They've already played in four games. They're going to play the rest of the season. So don't expect those guys uh, to be red shirts come, come 2024. But the defensive line and the offensive line as well, but really the defensive line is where I think that can come into play. Uh, and some of the members of the secondary too, like a Tyler Turner, a Cody to Canberra, uh, I'm trying to think who else, Dalen Austin, Roderick Pleasant, right? These guys haven't really seen the field, fully expect them to redshirt and, and you know, get an extra year of eligibility. Uh, I, I don't know why they wouldn't, because it also doesn't count against your ability to go to the NFL draft. So like you could be a redshirt sophomore and go to the NFL draft. So like after this year, you know, Ty Thompson, class of 2021, technically eligible for the NFL draft, not expecting him to go, just using that as an example. So I think with those guys, you're going to see the red shirts take place. And with the defensive linemen who have only really played, you know, garbage time against Colorado and Hawaii and Portland State, I, I don't suspect they're going to move into the world of burning their red shirts because I don't think there's a big benefit there. Um, I think we're going to have a lot of really talented redshirt freshmen who are probably playing key roles next year. You know, guys like Amari Washington, Ashton Porter, Mikhail Gardner, Terrence Green um, along the defensive line. Like you, you could go with with a lot of them for sure. Um, one of you, this was from Frank, uh, said, just joined this morning. I've been wondering if we will see Dickey play this year or does redshirt seem likely? Uh, he tweeted something out recently, I, I think, about you know, being patient and trusting the process or something like that. I forgot to write it down before I came on to record the show. But with Jury on Dickey, you know, he was one of the guy who I, guys who I would have pegged before the season as a true freshman most likely to make an impact because his floor is so high. Like, <laughs> you talk to any recruiting expert. I've seen him in person. Like, he went from a four to a five-star for a reason. And technically, Mateo was until the last moment. But Technically, it was Oregon's only five-star in the 2023 cycle. He's not playing right now because of the depth Oregon's got at the wide receiver position, right? Like, Kyler Casper's ahead of him on the depth chart. He probably should be because Kyler Casper hasn't just been there for a year and, you know, seen college reps, and I continue to like his upside, though I, that'd be a name maybe to monitor after the season for transferring just because he hasn't had a ton of playing time and his talent is immense, but there's also going to be, I think, some turnover in the wide receiver room uh, after this year, at least at you know Kyler Casper's position, which is X. Troy, Frank Troy Franklin will go to the NFL. But for for Jurion Dickey, you know, he has played really, really little, and I think that is twofold. Number one, they probably are planning to redshirt him and have him, you know, as ready as possible to be a part of, of the receiving core next year. Number two, he can also be just working his way into things and might not come along until the end of the year. And the you know reason 2.5 essentially as to why that is, is because he was a late enrollee. So he was a fall enrollee, not, not a guy who was here in the spring. So he wasn't there for spring football and the spring game. So he's still maybe learning things like the offensive playbook in the system, working on his blocking. Maybe he's got to, you know, get better in the strength department. Maybe he's got an injury nagging and we don't know about, right? We don't, that, that's speculative on my part, not reporting anything here. But I, I think for him, the, the timeline in another world could have been more accelerated. But here's the other thing. Dalen Austin, Roderick Pleasant, Jurion Dickey, those are all, th those were three linchpin recruits of Oregon's 2023 class. None of them are playing the field in meaningful fashion, right? And even guys who sh have shown a lot of promise, like Cole Martin, for instance, he's not playing in meaningful fashion. He's seen the field, 
but mostly in mop-up time. I think Cole Martin every now and then he's played the most among those four. But like Dickie Pleasant and Austin, if you told me right now they are all big parts of their rotations at their respective position groups in 2024, I totally believe you. But I don't think they're going to be a big part of it this year because you have a lot of depth, you have a lot of talent, and they just haven't been here for as long. So that stuff does matter and, and I think is a factor in the timeline. But if you told me, you know, Oregon suffers an injury or two at the receiving position, could Jerry on Dickey step up, play a bigger role next year? Or, or, or not next year, next year for sure. But by the end of the season, yeah, he absolutely could. It just looks like right now it might be a redshirt year and that's okay. So continuing along, this is another subtext question that came in to wrap up today's show. This is an interesting conversation and one that can definitely evolve throughout the course of the year. Tosh Lupoi's seat seemed to be hot coming into the season and Dan took over some of the play calling towards the end of the season last year. I don't think that's been confirmed, theorized, but not confirmed, putting his future in doubt. Yeah, again, we don't know that for certain. How much has his seat cooled after the last two games of having his first string defense not allowing a touchdown for six quarters, or do you think his seat has cooled at all? Will his true test as a defense coordinator come against the big four, USC, Washington, Utah, and Oregon State? Don't leave out Washington State, by the way. That's a really good football team, and and that's when we will really know if he's truly capable. In my opinion, holding that high-flying Colorado team in the air raid of Hawaii to under 400 yards combined, who are both top four in terms of passing yards this season, allows his seat to cool, but could become hot again if the defense gets walked on by Washington. So Dan Lanning has made it clear that there has never been a hot seat discussion publicly or in his view as it pertains to our defensive coordinator. Oregon fans at times have felt differently, which I understand because last year, did the defense play up to the standard I thought they were capable of? No, absolutely not. And Tosh Lupoi as the defensive coordinator was the defensive play caller last year. Now, the wild card in all of this is Chris Hampton, who came in to be the co-defensive coordinator after being the full-time defensive coordinator at Tulane. Between Hampton, Lupoi, and Lanning, I don't think we will ever get an actual answer as to who's calling plays. I said when Dan Lanning got hired, I would love for him to call plays, but at the college level, there just aren't that many coaches that do it because you have so many responsibilities as a head football coach in college compared to the NFL where every offensive coordinator who gets hired calls plays, right? Mike McDaniel calls plays, Uh, Kyle Shanahan, Sean McVay, uh, go down the list. Brandon Staley, who sucks, uh, is calling plays for, for the charge. Like, gosh almighty, can Justin Herbert please get a competent coach one time? One time, just once, please. Anyway, so he's calling plays. Like, oftentimes the coordinators are brought over and they're calling plays. Mike McCarthy with the Cowboys now, right? I could give you other examples. But in college, it's not as common. So Nick Saban doesn't call plays. Dan Lanning worked there at one point in time. I don't think Mike Norvell calls plays at uh, Florida State. Brian Kelly does not call plays at LSU. Kalen DeBoer at Washington does not call plays. Lincoln Riley and Chip Kelly are kind of the aberrations to the norm. Jonathan Smith doesn't call plays. So it's just kind of part of being a head coach in college is a more CEO role, which I understand. But after last year, and it, you know, I fully believe that Lanning and Tosh Lupoy did not have the defensive season they were hoping for in two games in particular, 
I wondered in the offseason if Chris Hampton was brought in to be the play caller. Because if you were a DC for a team that had a good defensive year, which Tulane did in 2022, and then you cap it off with a win in the Cotton Bowl over USC. I know that game was a shootout, but USC's got much better personnel than Tulane. So that's, you know, not really a fair fight. My thought during the offseason was, well, I wonder if Hampton wasn't brought in to call defensive plays because he's the co-defensive coordinator, right? It is definitely a collaborative effort at some level. But as for who decides, hey, we're going to cover one. Hey, we're going to, you know, stem the defensive line. And of course, they have more concise ways to make these calls. But we're going to stem the defensive line and bring weak side pressure. Hey, we're going to go simulated pressure here. Hey, we want to man up. Hey, we want to bracket this receiver and all that sort of stuff. Deciding that comes down to the play caller. So I I think Tosh Lupoy's hot seat discussion has been far more prevalent in the fan and media world and really in the media world I think on shows like this one or Ots and Audibles because of the fans who bring it up and you know I'm you all know I love the mailbag I'm responsive to what you guys are thinking and I hear the argument I mean Tosh Lupoi at one point in time in his career had defensive play calling duties stripped when he was at Alabama he then decided to move on he also, this past year, hadn't been a defensive coordinator in a few years, so maybe he just needed to get his feet back under him. Maybe Chris Hampton's helping a lot. But as for the hotness of his seat at this point in time, I don't think it's hot at all, and I think it's pretty ice cold after the last two games. Because as you point out in the question, his starters the last two games against good passing offenses, one at the G5 and one at the P5 level, yet they haven't had a touchdown. Six quarters, starters on the field, no touchdowns. It doesn't get any better than that. If we go up to Seattle and like, I think this is a question really for the end of the season, because if we go up to Seattle and allow 45 points and lose the game 45, 37. Yeah. The hot seat discussion will ramp back up. That's also the best passing offense in the country, because what if we then come back home the next week against Washington state with a great NFL capable quarterback and we hold the Cougars to 17 points and what if we hold USC under 30 and win that game like I don't think you should adjust this on a game-to-game basis I think what we need to do is allow the season to play out take each game as a piece of information and then at the end of the year assess what may or may not need to happen because the other thing about Tosh Lupoi he's an outstanding recruiter like a lot of the recruits that Oregon's brought in Tosh Lupoi is their primary recruiter And I think that's why after Matt Pallage left, Lanning went and brought in Chris Hampton because he wanted more help on that side of the ball. And I think so far, their early returns are really, really good. And Washington will be the biggest test. And there will be another chapter written in the story of Oregon's defense in 2023 this Saturday against Stanford. But the climax of the story will be Washington and Washington State and USC and Oregon State. And Utah as well. Though if they don't have Cam Rising, that offense... Um, but you know, it, it's, it's not the most potent, but it's also still a really good football team. So those be my thoughts on the matter. Thanks for the questions. Keep them coming. Appreciate everyone listening. I'll see you next time. Have a wonderful rest of your day. And as always go ducks.